Welcome to Smashing Through Walls with Carla McGee. Whether you are just pulling up a seat to the table, breaking a glass ceiling, or smashing through walls, grab your favorite mug and join us on the first and third Friday at 11 o'clock for candid conversations with industry experts and decision makers as we navigate and explore all the things related to real estate and community. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Smashing Through Walls with Carla McGee, where we don't just break the glass ceiling, we are smashing the walls. I am super excited today because we are talking about all my favorite things, Arizona real estate, with Nico Howard and Elliot Pollock with the Home Arizona program. So welcome, guys. We have one one online and one in person. So I'm really excited to hear what your organization is about and, you know, kind of spread the word out there. Sure. First of all, hi, Carla. Uh, great to be here today. My name is Nico Howard. Uh, as you mentioned, we've also got Elliot on the line. Uh, we're, we're grateful for the opportunity. Home Arizona is really a group of uh, business and civic leaders who are coming together to talk about issues in housing policy. And specifically, we advocate for the development of fair and quality living spaces for all of Arizona's employees and their families. And so really, there's, there's two components there. There's housing policy and specifically how that relates to our workforce and labor availability. So we can talk a little bit more about that, but at a high level, that's kind of what we do. Well, that is really cool. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Elliot, the the man on yeah. Zoom. Yeah, I'm the invisible man. I'm <laughs> Elliot Pollock. And uh, basically, uh, Home Arizona uh, started really with a guy named Michael Lieb, and I... Uh, was at breakfast with him one morning and we started talking about what's going on in the housing market and its effect on economic development. One of the things that Phoenix has been able to do over the years is attract quality employment. And it's actually at at the pinnacle of that now with TSMC and the Intel expansion and all the, the electric vehicle manufacturers and a lot of other things. It's really taking hold. Well, I've been doing this for 53 years. I've been a practicing economist uh, for 53 years, which makes me about about, about 120 years old, by the way, uh, if you're doing math. (laughs) But the bottom line is that this is the biggest threat to economic development that I've seen in that 53 years. Because if companies, employees can't find reasonably priced housing, they're not coming. The employers are not coming. So this is a real challenge. And we decided that one of the problems was that it's one of these things that sneaks up on you and nobody really understood it. So that's the purpose of Home Arizona. We have very bright people, not just from the development community. We've got former mayors. We've got economic development people. We've got economists. We've got people who really understand the issue. And we are now getting the word out that the the that there is a housing shortage. It took 10 years to develop. Uh, we have been underbuilding really since 2008, and it got to the point we were, were now at, at the lowest vacancy rate, both for apartments and single-family housing that we've ever had. And the result is the ridiculously high increase in prices that basically forces people out of the market. It, it affects affordability. It, uh, it affects where our critical uh, workers are going to live. It depends where it it affects where new people coming to town are going to live. And so it's an issue and we just want to alert people to it. And we've been successful in doing that uh, uh, for the most part so far. I don't know if you want to add to that. That's that's my take. No, I think that's a a great summary, Elliot. Um, The only thing that I I would add is, you know, sometimes we we go quickly and we look at these things all day. So a lot of this becomes somewhat intuitive after a period of time. But I think it's important to explain some of the mechanics by which this kind of takes place. And so when a major employer is looking at moving to the Phoenix MSA or any new market, one of the biggest pain points that they have is the ability to attract and retain key talent. Where do they get their people? And typically you'll see a mix of things. There's some portion of that workforce that is already native to that market. So they just go, they put up an ad, people come and apply, they hire those people. But for a company the size of TSMC or Intel or Core Power, almost always they're going to have to import some 
portion of that workforce from somewhere else. So maybe they're living in another state, maybe they're living in another country. Those employees have to make the decision to move from where they are to a new place, to move their family, to move their life. And you have to look at what drives that decision on the part of an employee. And so they're looking at a number of things, but but one of the biggest things they're looking at is the cost of living, specifically the cost of housing. And so what we've seen is if somebody is looking at fe- moving to the Phoenix MSA and they cannot find housing within a price point that makes sense to them, or they have better options elsewhere, those employees don't move to this market. And if enough employees stop moving to this market, eventually major employers stop moving to this market because their needs simply aren't met. And so if we don't have sufficient residential solutions, residential housing for our employees, and I want to be very clear, by the way, a lot of times people talk about affordable housing and workforce housing. We're talking about everything along the spectrum. And so what we've seen is uh, not just a deficit for our essential workers, our, our nurses, our cops, our firefighters, our teachers. There absolutely is that. But for the first time in Phoenix's history, you're seeing engineers that make 160 grand a year that can't find reasonable housing solutions where they're trying to go. And so it's, it's um, a much bigger problem, I think, than anybody really realized for a long time. That's really how that happens is employees stop coming, major employers stop coming, we become less competitive from an economic development perspective, our affordability goes down, our labor availability goes down, and eventually we just become a less vibrant, less successful market as a result. So, I mean, and it's no surprise, right? Like, I feel like even as an outsider, if you look at the Phoenix market and you've seen like this massive increase of people coming in and influxing in and our prices going up, it like this feels like like kind of a no-brainer kind of moment. It's like, well, well, yeah, but what's the solution? Do you so what do you guys talk about? So you have influencers at your table and you guys are having these discussions. Like what what are those discussions and how what are some of the solutions we're coming up with? Well the there is really um uh the bottom line is there is one solution. Okay. They could be seven solutions, but then I give you the same verbiage seven <laughs> times, okay? The only way you can do this is to end the housing shortage. The only way you can end the housing shortage is by building more units. And by the way, the interesting thing is that most people who don't like that solution, which is the only solution, uh, don't like apartments, which is strange because virtually everybody who's listening has lived in an apartment one time or another. And a lot of people like that lifestyle, but that's neither here nor there. But <laughs> as affordability becomes more difficult, more people are going to be priced out of the single family market and will be rented. So what what uh, uh, we are asking of cities is to get in touch with people who are in the marketplace daily there are some things they can control, some things they can't control. They can't control the supply chain. They can't control interest rates, but they can control how fast things get through the system. They can control how much regulation there is and whether things are gold-plated. Right now, about 40% of the cost of building an apartment has to do with regulation, which is unbelievable. And that's been going up. So what we're simply saying is, why don't you Meet with people who are in the marketplace every day. See what you can do to speed things up. See if there's any things that you agree with that perhaps are overregulated or don't need to be quite as gold-plated. And that really will is what cities can do. But what they really can do is say, we have a problem and we're going to recognize that problem and we're going to do the best we can to help mitigate that problem so things get back to normal. Let me give you an idea of how critical it is. Just since November, which is seven months ago, the cost of buying the identical home in Phoenix has gone up more than 50%, some because of price increases, some because of interest rates. But historically, Phoenix is a very affordable market. Uh, If you take a look at the median price home, median simply means 50% above, 50% below, about 65 or 70% of all the ha- all the families in Phoenix could afford the median priced home, which made it a very affordable market. It's down to 43%, and it'll be in the 30s before we know it. And all of a sudden, not only is there no place for new guys to go, but as as, as Nico pointed out, what, what about 
your essential workers? What about your nurses? What about your um, your your cops? What about the firemen? What about the chef? What about the guy who works in Seven Eleven? Uh, what about uh, where where are these people going to live? And the answer is that with vacancy rates so low, basically rents are going up as well as prices, and more people are going to be pushed out of the bottom of that ladder. So there's going to be more homelessness. This is a really serious issue. And there's only one way to resolve it. And it, it's not going to get resolved unless cities recognize that they have a problem and that they try to cooperate with the private sector. I'm not saying everything the private sector says is correct. That's obviously not. But they, they got to talk. They got to talk and see if, what the mid-ground is. And because, as Nico pointed out, this is across all housing types, at all price levels, and at all income levels. Everybody who's listening to this is affected if they're trying to buy or rent. I totally agree with what you're saying. And, and you know, your example of the engineer making 150000 a year, not being able to buy a house, it, it sounds like it is a ridiculous scenario, but it's not. It's That's legitimate. As much as I, in my personal opinion, we needed interest rates to go up so that we could slow things down. Now that we have kind of taken a pause and we've like, t- can we breathe for a second. This is really important to look at. So as we shift into the next phase of this, what does that look like? So part of what you're saying is creating more housing, right? Yes. And it sounds like one of the solutions is high-density housing, multifamily apartments. Well, well, that's, well, when I say housing, there's single family, which we need more of, and apartments, which we need more of. We need more of every type of housing. But what happens to single family housing, as you become less and less affordable, is there's a shift more to apartments. So instead of about 65%, 35% apartment of single family and apartments, it gets closer to 50-50. And that's, that's uh, something that, you know, uh, is, is always been a hallmark of Phoenix. It's always had affordable single family housing. Uh, but the housing that's on the market becomes on smaller lots, more dense, smaller setbacks, things that'll make it more affordable. If you go to uh, take a look at the new housing in California or Nevada, uh, it's completely different for the most part than the new homes in Phoenix. And uh, uh, that's just going to be a, a, a consequence of, of uh, what's necessary to make things more affordable. Um, it, this is a long-term solution, uh, a long-term problem rather, and it, there's no quick fix. But unless you get on it quickly, we have economic development issues that fiscally and financially are going to affect everybody in the valley. You know, I would add to that, uh, it's, it's just kind of common sense, right, that, that something has to give. You've seen land prices continue to skyrocket. You've seen material prices continue to skyrocket. You've seen labor prices continue to skyrocket. We just can't keep building single-family homes on acre lots forever with all of these constraints. It just, the economics don't work and expect to be able to provide that same house affordably the way that we did 40 years ago to our citizens. Yes. Before we we dive too far into the solutions, I did want to just say a couple more words about the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a lot of folks out there that just read headlines and they're not looking at the data itself that leads to these conclusions. Um, and I want to try to get away from conclusions, opinions, interpretations, and I want to spend some time just talking about the facts, right? What are the things that are not subject to interpretation, the things that we can all agree on and start there? Um, And Elliot, I'm using your data, so please stop me if I misstate anything, but from 2000 to 2010 across the Phoenix MSA, we delivered 487,000 housing units, right? And so that's a pretty, pretty large number of housing units, I think everybody agrees we significantly overbuilt during that decade. We built way more housing than and that we was not needed. just unique to Phoenix. Yeah, by that, the way, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, but from 2010 to 2020, we built closer to 240,000 housing units, so about less than half of that number. And if you look at the chart by decade, that was the the smallest number of housing units delivered in any decade since the 1960s. And we have to as well talk about the demand side of that equation. We had the greatest net in-migration that we've seen during that that decade, right, Uh, 2010 to 2020. We have 80 to 90,000 new people moving to the Phoenix MSA every year. 
So as demand patterns are at their highest, our our level of supply, our level of inventory that we're putting on the market is actually historically very low. And so that's how we get to the conclusion that we are undersupplied. You don't have to take our word for it. I think you've seen the price increases that are evidence of that. Um, You know, we've seen between 25 to 30% price increases both both across single family for sale and multifamily rental properties, which sends a pretty unambiguous, unequivocal message to us in the data. But I do just want to kind of share share with your viewers how we got here, why we are of of this impression. Right. And I think- Yeah, and there's there's two other things that I want to add to that. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty good summary. But on top of that, right now, the latest numbers are that 46%, 46% of people 18 to 29 are living home with mommy and daddy. That's the highest it's been since 1940, the end of the Great Depression. Wow. Okay. That's insane. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you have the rodent going through the python, which uh, I, the millennial pop- population, where the. Those the, damn millennials. <laughs> but essentially, the, the the largest number of millennials uh, basically are between 26 and 32. They're entering prime home buying years. So not only do you have the population flows, but of the people already here, you're going to get two things. One, millennials wanting to follow their parents, which I know they hate, but they're going to follow their parents out to the suburbs and buy a house as they have kids. That's kind of the way it is. Uh, the second thing is at some point, the parents are going to say, you know what? Get out of here. You got a job. You're making some money. Get out of here. Go go get your own household. And so on top of the 80 or 90,000 we're talking about, you have this these other hidden demographics that will only add to the demand, of, especially for single family housing, but for households in general over the next few years. And I think what's unique to Phoenix versus other metropolitan areas in our country is because I think all metropolitans kind of share that demographic. What's unique to Phoenix is then we also have our seasonal residents that take up second properties that are pushing on that demand. And then our tourist properties, short-term rentals that are also consuming some of those houses and adding to our demand as well. And I, I feel like that's unique to us versus, you know. Well, it's, I think I think that the, the second home market is characteristic of places that are attractive seasonally. Obviously, not a lot of people are buying homes here to stay all summer and go home during the winter. Uh, They're staying here all winter and go home during the summer. But it's characteristic also of ski areas where people do stay during the winter and go home during the the summer. And you have a lot of uh, second homes, but because it's such a good place and people like it so much, there is a huge tourist component, and the Airbnb market really helps that component. There, last year, there were 11,000 uh, basically uh, bridal parties, if you will, in Scottsdale alone. 11,000. 11, you know how many people that brought in? Wow. And guess what? If you're, you've got seven women uh, coming to your party or eight women coming to your party, you're probably going to get an Airbnb because you can all stay in the same place. We're putting them in a Hotel makes it not a, not not viable for them. Mm-hmm. So there there are yes, it takes up housing, but you have to offset that by looking at what's the economic impact if those things go away. But the bottom line is the only real solution is more housing of of all types. Yeah, and and that's very well said, Elliot. the on, The only other thing I would add to that is I, I sometimes hear that short term rental argument used as a reason for why we're seeing these price increases. And I, I don't want to mince words. Obviously, when you take something out of the long term supply, you are diminishing the supply. That will have some impact on the, the pricing. Yeah. But I think the magnitude of that impact is grossly overstated. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's the tail wagging the dog. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be interested to see what the like actual percentage is because I don't think it is significant. I just think that three percent. Yeah, it's it just like if you keep adding the three percent, though, they start to create something significant, right? Well, let's put it this way: a lot of those people would keep their places and rent them out by the month instead of the week, so there wouldn't be short-term rentals. But again, you have to figure out what the net would be 
and take a look at it versus the economic impact of those people being here. Because once again, if you've got an Airbnb, you're probably there because it's cheaper than a hotel. Mm-hmm. And or it's just more, more convenient. convenient. Than yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Your bridal party example is a good example yeah. of that. So we had the economic director of Scottsdale on here, Rob Millar. We were talking about attainable housing because they, they, he was saying, yes, Scottsdale is a gorgeous place to live. But back to your engineering example, that's a prime example of someone who's making decent money and can't live in the community that they're working in. So take, for example, his daughters are teachers. And he was like, my daughters can't even find somewhere to live in their own city that they grew up in because their, you know, their salary isn't enough. And, you know, part of that's just being young and, you know, you're coming up the ranks, but part of it is very legitimate at the same time. So he was talking about how the cities can take public school property. And actually, a thing that's unique to Arizona is we can put housing on public school property, (laughs) almost like a, what, like a teacher dorm? Like, but I was like, started to think about like outside of the box, like what would that look like if you're trying to attract teachers to live here and you're giving them housing? So that is real quick. That is becoming a big deal, especially with communities that have older uh, buildings that they want to essentially do something with, uh, converting them into uh, rental units for their teachers. Because, you know, what do you want your teacher to do? Drive 50 miles every day right. and get to work? And I'll tell you why I laugh. It's actually my brother that's leading that initiative with the city oh, of Scottsdale. Oh, really? That's so, so funny. Yeah, so he's been he's been working hard on that to try to get more housing for our teachers and, and really try to offer a different price point um, than what you're seeing in, in traditional class A market rate that you're seeing built well, in, in Scottsdale right is, now. I mean, then it sounds like that's a, I mean, what a what a fun full circle this became, but like, because sure. he's the economic director and his teacher, his daughters are teachers. So he, yeah. he sees it from an economic standpoint, but also personally, right? Like that his own family. So. Well, well Dax, if yeah, you're, but- if you're listening, shout out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a great, it's a great use. It's a great concept. And it's, it's got a huge market, and therefore I like it a lot. But uh, essentially, there's office buildings that probably could be converted. There's certainly old shopping centers that could be converted. There's a lot of things that cities have to now consider that they never had to consider before. Right. And it's not only teachers, although it's a prime example. How about your cops? How about your yeah. firemen? How about your nurses near hospitals? How about, you know, like I said, where's the guy who's running, sitting behind the counter in a 7-Eleven? Where's he going to live? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, you've got to be reasonable. And, and that brings me to my next point. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to be tactful about this. The main objective of a lot of people who are elected is to get reelected. Okay, I'll be, it's that simple. Right. And therefore, when they go to a city, they go have a city council meeting, and there's eight guys who stand up against this project, they never stop to think about, well, these guys are mad and they, they're about it. What about the rest of the community? What about the guy who's standing home, staying home watching a football game tonight or a baseball game? He doesn't care because he likes it, so it doesn't bother him, okay? But so they're reacting to a, a, a vocal minority, quite frankly, and these people have their certain right to do that, but we've done polling and the, the, the most amazing thing to me is 73% of the people we polled, and these were real polls. These are the guys who did polling for, for Doug Ducey, and obviously that worked in terms of, of uh, uh, what they were saying. 73% believe that we're in a housing crisis. This is 2022. You couldn't get 73% to agree that it's hot outside in Phoenix. <laughs> okay? So, so that is, a, and it's not just people who are wackos on one side or another. This is soccer moms. This is everybody. This is people who who day to day know there's a problem. And uh, it's a problem that they norm, you normally wouldn't think that somebody would, in that ilk would, of that ilk would be concerned about. But it's becoming a big deal because their kids can't come home and visit. Their parents can't move close to them. Uh, it, it's, it, it gets personal. Mm-hmm. And uh, by saying, no, we don't need more housing, you're sticking your head in the sand. You do. The question is how to deal with it and where it, where it should go, and that's the city council issue. But you can't deny the fact that we are in a housing shortage 
and the economic consequences of doing nothing will hurt the entire community fiscally and in terms of its vibrance. And those are big deals. I think sometimes what happens too, kind of along that same line, because what it reminded me of is is the what we call the NIMBYs, right? The not in my backyards. And right. so I, I belong to a very, I, so I live in Northeast Mesa and I belong to um, a really large Facebook group uh, for Gilbert. And I swear, half of what I read in there is, why are we building more apartments here? Build them somewhere else. Build them in Mesa. Build them on the other side of the 60. And it's like, <laughs> what's wrong with them being in your backyard? How come they have to? So I feel like sometimes you get in this like, yes, I understand 75% of people understand that that's going on, but I have a house, so I'm good. Right. Like, so, you know, like, what do we tell those people when, you know, they either they already have grown children that own homes, but like they seemed very unconcerned about their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren sure. or my grandkids or anybody else's, you know, it's very like egocentric. I want to be like. the last apartment that was ever built in this city. Kind right, of thing. right. I, right. I want to be the last R16 or whatever it is. Yeah. Imagine if somebody had done the same thing when they were moving to town. Right. right. Now, by their definition, the second guy to ever move to Phoenix costs sprawl. Right. <laughs> or it's like, you know, or I'll see on there, like, someone's like, hey, I'm moving from, you know, insert state here, wondering about, you know, school districts or something. And like half the responses are like, go home, don't come here, we're full. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they probably weren't These raised were all here. transplants, right? yeah. Like, no yeah. one's from here anymore. Every, I mean, yeah. So it just blows my mind that it's that kind of mentality that it was okay for you, but it's not okay for anybody else. And how are we ever going to solve it if well, everybody's well, running it, around thinking like that? This is, this is a real problem. I'll give you an mm-hmm. example. I have friends who live in Florida. And one of them told me, he, he tends to speak to people about why they moved to Florida, new people he beats that just moved here. And they say, well, I moved here from New York. In New York, the taxes were very high. And it was a, a really difficult place to live, and, but it had great museums and it had buses and we got all this free stuff. And then why'd you move to Florida? Well, Florida's gorgeous and uh, it's warm and there's no taxes. And they don't associate the fact that all that free stuff was what caused the taxes to be high. And if they don't want those taxes, they're going to be trade-offs. Well, that's the situation we have now. We have a very vibrant community. I've been here since 1964. Phoenix was not a vibrant community in 1964. It grew into it. It is much more fun to live here today. There's much more to do. It's far more interesting. And what if we had stopped it in 1964? We'd be Tucson, okay? We're not Tucson, okay? And I think it's important to state a couple of things about the nature of our public processes as well. Um, Just a quick uh, disclaimer Um, I am the chairman of the Planning and Zoning Commission for the City of Phoenix. And so I just want to make sure it's clear. I don't speak for the City of Phoenix. I'm not speaking in that capacity at all. Um, I'm just speaking as an everyday citizen right now. But I have seen and experienced a lot of this through my my time there um, on the commission. And the way that things really work is you know, if if it's like the Yelp phenomenon, if somebody is against a, a project of any kind, they dedicate their next the next six to twelve months of their lives around fighting that project. They go knock on the doors of every one of their neighbors. They build a coalition, and in a weird way, people really come together around that. I mean, a, 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 around the fighting of a common enemy. They have a war room in their kitchen, and all of these things. And when somebody is either you know indifferent or you know maybe in support of a project just like Elliot said, they stay home and they watch football, right? You don't see people really come together with that same rallying cry. And there are certain dynamics that you really have to appreciate, which is if you're kind of for a project or you don't really care and you see that one of your neighbors who's two houses down really takes it as a personal insult, a a slight against their very existence, you typically leave that one be, right? You typically say, well, I like it, but I don't know if I really want to fight with my neighbors about it. I don't know if I really want to be the guy standing up there against torches and pitchforks. And so Elliot is exactly right about that vocal minority. You know, some of the things that we see are just absolutely incredible, right? Yeah, you know, the misinformation that floats around, uh, the things that people say that, number one, aren't, isn't true, but number two, causes them to be hypocritical. You know, we see all the time, they say, we don't want this zoning. And you say, well, sir or ma'am, where do you live? And you look at their current housing, you say, you realize you're zoned that way. 
And so it's, it's, it's just staggering. And what we really need when we talk about solutions is for people to take the nature of these things into consideration and change their behavior on the support side. We need to see advocacy. We need the business community uh, to come together, the pro-growth community to come together and say, no, there are people that want this, right? If you have 100 people that don't want this, we have 1,000 people that do. And we're going to like write those letters in support. We're going to come to meetings. But I will be honest, if you have a Thursday night meeting at 6 p.m., or, or worse yet, a council meeting that's in the middle of the day, there's not a lot of folks that are really going to call out of work to go do that. And so it's a challenging thing because the electeds are looking at what's before them and the data that they have and what they see, and what they see tends to be misleading. There's a, there's a selection bias there. Um, and so, you know, I think if, if people are listening and they want to say, how can we help get involved, right? Write your council person call developers when you see a project and say, hey, can I come out and speak out on, on behalf of this? And to developers, to the business community, shame on you. Shame on you for your lack of, of legwork throughout this process. I have these cases come before me and not a single person speaks in support. And I say, you know, guys, you spent $150,000 on zoning attorneys. You spent all of this money on engineers. You have all of these plans where is your community outreach? I mean, did you not have five friends in your entire network that live within two miles of this project? Could you not knock on the doors of retail users in the area and say, by the way, all of these rooftops are going to support your retail? I mean, they're just, they're, they're unfortunately, people have been so busy. The market has been so crazy. That side of things has really gotten left behind. And that is part of what our group is trying to do is bring together those interests that really, you know, benefit from this and say, guys, it's time to get involved. We used to have major involvement from the business community. Um, you know, they used to get involved in municipal elections. If you talk to a home builder or even apartment builder today, they don't know who the council person in the district is. And it's like, of course, you're losing these zoning cases. You guys aren't really doing the work. And so um, that would be my kind of call to arms to the business community is get engaged. I think, too, coming out of the tail end of a pandemic certainly did not help, right? That even those of us that wanted to be involved, even those of us that are probably more involved than the average citizen, the meetings were on Zoom or they were canceled or it was so kind of erratic at some at one point, like, wait, are we having them? Are we not having them? Like, what's going on? And so even the folks that wanted to be involved kind of dropped off because, it was like, well, I can't even keep up with what's going on. Uh, and, and they can be long and tedious meetings. That too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about zoning is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll tell you on a personal note, um, I'm our school's PTA president, and we have the same challenges just on a much more micro level, right? We are a school of 500 kids, and there are five of us that run the entire PTA for the entire school. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody doesn't have an opinion where the funds go, what events are being created for the kids, but where are those opinions when when we're planning, when we're trying to do these things, you know, so on a, on a macro level for an entire city, it's the same issue. It's just so then it's like, how do we get people involved? How do we, how do we tell them how important it is to not just, not just be listening, but to also, you know, get involved? And I think by education and example, right? Mm -hmm. um, the first is people just don't really understand how these decisions are made. I do think that elected officials need to do a better job of looking at the, the data, the housing data, and evaluating projects within the broader context of a housing shortage, a labor shortage, all of these things. But on some level, it's not completely their fault either because mm -hmm. they're just doing what they, they're going based on what they see. And what they see is you know, 50 people that are against the project and nobody that's in support. And so it looks like it's a bad project. It looks like it's a project that everybody hates. Right. And so some of that falls on us, right? And the other part is example. Uh, you know, I talk to developers that complain day in and day out about the opposition they face, but they themselves don't ever go out to support zoning cases. And so that's one of the things I say to everybody. And, you know, you talk to people as well on, on the citizen side where they say, we want sit-down restaurants, we want coffee shops, we want higher-end retail. And I'm like, okay, well, then you want density. You want multifamily because that's what those retailers want. They want high incomes, they want visibility, they want access, uh, and they want people in the community that are going to support them financially. 
those people that want those things need to go out and tell their uh, their council people. They need to tell their villagers. They need to tell their commissioners, you know, these are the things that we want. And by the way, this is the path to get there. I was going to say, so how do they find that information? This is your opportunity to educate them. How do they find that information? What do they say? So I, in my neighborhood, I'm tired of fast food chains. I would, I would like a sit-down restaurant. How do I find who to call? How do I find who to write a letter to? And, and what should that letter say? The short answer is your council person for the district almost always. But in Phoenix, there are really three levels of, of uh, public hearings. You have, I think it's 14 villages, and they hear kind of more localized projects. Uh, they then feed up to the Planning and Zoning Commission, where I sit as chair. That uh, kind of presides over Phoenix generally and hears all of those 14 villages' recommendations. After that, we render a recommendation to council. Council ultimately votes. It is the council vote that is binding. So in Phoenix, there's an opportunity at all three of those levels to come out and testify, to write letters, to make calls. Every municipality differs, but almost everyone is voted on by the city council or whatever the the equivalent is. Um, and so I think that is the short answer is, you know, start with your your city council person or even staff at the city, make a call. But what I encourage people to do always is don't try to stop development. It's a losing task, right? Developers don't create demand. People are coming to Phoenix, whether we like it or not. It's not a question of whether we're going to stop building. It's a question of what that building is going to look like. So stop trying to stop development and start trying to shape development. Um, so there's things from a design perspective, aesthetics, kind of architecture, all these things where you can have a voice. Um, when you come down to, you know, density, for example, that's a more challenging ask because what you're really talking about is controlling the supply. And what I think from an economic uh, perspective, we all agree is that's exactly what we need more of is supply. Now, I do want to be very honest and, and, and transparent. There are certain places that are better sites for apartments than others, right? And so if you have five acre lots on all side of you, that, that probably isn't the place for a 30 to the acre, you know, 300 unit apartment complex. And so the neighbors do have some legitimacy in that. And we need to look at the totality of interests. It's not just about the economics. It's not just about the neighborhood uh, issues as well. You have to look at all of it, but there is a cost. There is always going to be a cost uh, to everything, to growth, to development. And so one of those costs is oftentimes we hear objections, we want to keep the neighborhood as it is. We want to do things that are in keeping with the character and the context. Well, it's not always possible. You can't do both. You can't grow and keep things the same at the same time. If you look at pictures of Central and Camelback from 1960, they don't look the same that they did today. If you go back 60 years before that, there's a lot of places that were still dirt roads that we consider to be central core infill locations. And so you hear that a lot you know, when you have these projects uh, and, and you have people that have been living there for 35 years, they say, well, we moved here to be on the outskirts of town. And, and it's hard to tell them because you feel bad. You do have a heart for these folks. But the reality is this isn't the outskirts of town anymore, right? right. Anthem used to be very far away. Now TSMC is, you know, North Phoenix is going to be a, yeah. Yeah, a, pretty, a pretty central place. You look at, at all of this stuff, we didn't historically have a downtown. I mean, and, and forgive me, it was always there, but, you know, the, the, and maybe this is crass, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air, but 20 years ago when I was growing up, there were two reasons you went downtown. It was to catch a baseball game or to score some meth. Oh, and those were just the answers. You know, you had right. people that worked down there, but you right. didn't really have people that lived down there. No, it's yeah. true. Yeah. I, so I, I was going to say, I moved here in 1996 from a small town in Washington state. And, Phoenix scared the shit out of me. I'll just be <laughs> honest. One of my friends got carjacked in downtown Phoenix, <laughs> and I thought that only happened in movies. And now it's one of the places I'll go. I like I sell real estate, so I'll go there alone. Like and like that is a vast difference from 30 years ago when I moved here. Yeah, yeah. And, and Nico, Nico hit the nail on the head about a lot of things, uh, but especially for those people who, you know. If you don't like an apartment because it's near you, say, I don't like this apartment near me. Don't say, I don't like apartments. I don't want more development. That's a, that is an untenable position. I think people who do that, to me, they're on the lunatic fringe. The reality is that 
that Phoenix is going to continue to grow, that it will continue to flourish when we get past this problem. And he's absolutely right. Downtown, there was a downtown. It died in about 1960 when Park Central Mall opened. Okay. And all of a sudden, people said, geez, I don't know, need to go downtown for all these services. And downtown died. It died because uh, the city council at that point was unfriendly to parking, if you can believe that. And <laughs> so the people didn't move there because the, the amenities had moved out. And the amenities didn't go downtown because there were no people. Okay, So it was a catch-22 for years. The only reason that downtown Phoenix reflourished was ASU. Had it not been for Michael Crow and Phil Gordon coming to that agreement to put ASU's campus downtown, downtown Phoenix would still be the, the ghost town that that uh, that Nico describes. And that that is a wonderful story on how the private sector, well, the, the quasi-public sector, which is ASU, and and the government got together and did something that made a huge problem into a huge plus. If you go downtown today, it is vibrant as heck. It's great. Same thing with downtown Scottsdale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a couple of bars and there was the Pink Pony and there was a sugar bowl, but it's nothing like it is today. Nothing at all. And and what it is today is nothing like it's going to be 25 years from now in in terms of its vibrance. The other thing I like to say is that some people think the only people who live in apartments are bikers and pole dancers. Not that I have anything against pole dancers. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that most of us have lived in apartments, that a large percentage of the population are at the age where they like that lifestyle because they don't want to take care of a house anymore. They sell their house, they take the equity in it, and they can enjoy the rest of their lives. Uh, there's also uh, people, uh, millennials, who are very successful but ha- don't have the money for a down payment and just like the lifestyle at this point. Eventually, they'll they'll want to move into housing if they haven't yet. But essentially, it's not bad people. The types of, of for example, the types of apartments that have been being built in Scottsdale, they're pretty expensive apartments. They're about two fifty a foot, and so these people, you're not getting. Uh, people at the very low end. In fact, one of the problems is just that. If you're a 75-year-old widow and you're on a fixed income and you're a landlord because of supply and demand just said, well, now the rents are going to go up three, 400 bucks, you, you're in real trouble. You're in real trouble. The only way to resolve that is to bring up an, uh, bring a, an, enough new supply of anything to force rents to be more reasonable. It's true. That's really true. So if we're bringing up supply, the last question I'll ask, which is going to be on everybody's mind, is how do we address water? I mean, we live in the desert. People point out Lake Mead a lot, that it's depleting on a daily basis, but that's not necessarily our entire water supply. But we still have to think about it. So what are those those thoughts? Let me give you a generalized answer, okay? I have looked at this issue at least six times since I started working back in 1969 for Valley National Bank. That was the first thing they asked me to look at as an economist, uh, water issues in Tucson. And the answer today is the same as it was back then. There's a problem on how to to deal with it, but are we running out of water? No. All right. In fact, we're using the same amount of water today that we used in 1957. Think about that. Okay. Now, what has happened is in 1957, 11% of water uses were for municipal and industrial 89% 89% was for agriculture. The reality is cotton plants don't vote. So now it's about 70% agriculture and about 30% municipal and industrial. And so that will continue to diminish less agriculture or more efficient use of agricultural water over time. But uh, in effect, we still have water. There's problems because of the drought. People have to be, one of the problems in Phoenix anyway, is that water is essentially free. What's your water bill? Can you even tell me? Uh, yeah, mine's about 150 Okay, so you live in a single-family home. I do, with a pool. Uh, with a pool mm-hmm. and grass, probably. And grass. Uh, but if, if you take a look at Tucson, 
where water bills are about two and a half times what they are in Phoenix, they use a third less water per capita than they do in Phoenix. You want to know why? Because almost 65% of all or 55% of all the water we use is for landscaping. So if you want to really save on water, you know, demand xeroscopic landscaping, but use the price mechanism. Make it really expensive at the margin if you're going to water an acre of grass. That ought to be really expensive. Wait, so you'll e- change your behavior. Elliot, I just want to make sure, because this is blowing my mind. You're, you're saying that when you make things more expensive, <laughs> people buy less of that thing? I know it's a hard concept, but yeah. Oh my God, this, this, is, this is mind-blowing. Like supply and demand like, governs yeah. markets? What? Yeah. So <laughs> let's put it this way. When we lived in Portland, Oregon, where there is ample water everywhere, our water bill was more there than it is here. Like yeah, how, like, that. right. Like how does, like, how does that make sense? And yeah. it's just because it's, it's very inexpensive here compared yeah, and to other. Here's the countries. other thing. Most cities, Scottsdale especially has a very good drought management and the odds of them getting to that level are pretty slim, but they know how to deal with it. They've thought this through and none of it involves basically saying, Oh, sorry, you can't move any here because we're out of water. That is not on the table. How do apartments, by the way, per capita water use in apartments is half that of per capita water use in a single family home. Why? Because there's not a lot of landscaping in a per capita in an apartment. Okay. So all that has to happen is that you have to use the price mechanism. And if you want to regulate something, just say you're going to have xeroscopic landscaping. You're not going to have an acre of grass. One of the statistics on water usage that really stood out to me is, you know, our water is so cheap in in Phoenix um, that it it almost borders on subsidies, right? You have something that uh, is in great shortage um, and they're charging rates as though we had a surplus. And that's just completely backwards from my perspective. You have to look at the life cycle of that water. What is that water used for? What products does it create? Where does that product ultimately go? Um, And a lot of times you see it goes to cotton and alfalfa farming in the desert, which just right off the bat, the desert is not the right place to be mining or to be uh, growing water intensive crops to begin with. But then a lot of those things are exported outside of the country. So you look at the alfalfa pellets, a lot of those go to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, um, and they're used for feed for, for, um, for, for animals. So what ultimately happens is you basically have the United States government or whatever the municipality is subsidizing a commodity that we're in a shortage of and then exporting that commodity to another country. So effectively, you are subsidizing another country that doesn't have water. And it's just it's just completely backwards. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just I agree with you. It's one of those like those things that make you go. hmm. Yeah, I will say that the city of Mesa right now, my admin and I just did a like a newsletter to um, to some of my followers that they're doing a subsidy for like zero scape and, you know, a variety of things that take less water. So I know that some of our municipalities are trying. And again, that leading by example and getting involved. Well, so, yeah. But again, they, what they should do is re-examine the price mechanism. You know, you use uh, the average person uses about 120 gallons a day, uh, including for landscaping, which is more than half of that. If above, let's call it 100 gallons a day, you started to raise the price and every 50 gallons, you really raise that price of water, you'd get some, you'd, you'd get some savings immediately. Again, mm-hmm. take a look at Tucson's rates and what, how much water usage is down there compared to Phoenix. It's a lot less. Yes. And I mean, that just makes basic economic sense, right? Yeah. So as we wrap up, it has been so much fun to talk to you guys. I, you know, like I said, these are some of my favorite topics and I could just keep going all day, but we're coming to a close. So tell everybody how they can get a hold of you, how they can get involved, uh, you know, anything you would like to tell the listeners. Yeah. So I think the short answer is uh, please reach out to Home Arizona. Our executive uh, director is Stacy Pearson. Um, she's a fantastic person and handles a lot of our PR and public outreach um, we'll go ahead and give you her phone number and email to put on the website to reach out to us. Uh, I know that we're coming to a close. Could I make two quick sure. last points? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's two things that I wanted to say on on behalf of our organization, Home Arizona. Um, the first is that, you know, neither the public sector nor the private sector can solve this issue on their own. We are partners. We view the municipalities as our partners. We view the yes. elected officials as our partners. And we really want to be a, a tool. We want to be useful to them 
um, whatever we can do to help, uh, and we don't ever want there to be an adversarial tone, um, you know, they are smart, hardworking, good people that are really doing their best to solve what is a very complicated, very challenging problem, right? And so um, I just want to start there. We believe that zoning belongs at the local level. It should stay at the local level. We would never support the state usurping that or anything like that. So that's point number one. The cities are our friends. We want to continue to be their friends. We want to help in any way that we can. Um, the second point is just, and, and I'm kind of going back, uh, you had you had talked about cities becoming so expensive that basically the folks that work in those cities can't live in those cities. And I just want to say at a very high level, we have fiscal uh, analyses to really back this up. When you have workers that work in your city but don't live in your city, all of that tax base leaks out to other municipalities. So all of the benefits of having that employment in your city, they go away. They go to other places because people tend to spend money where they live, not where they work. Where you go to the grocery store is probably closer to your house than to your office in most cases. Where you go to the movies on the weekend, where you go out to dinner, all of those things. And so I just want to keep that in people's minds that there are meaningful economic development, uh, excuse me, meaningful economic benefits to cities from more bodies, more people, more density, more apartments, all of those things. And so I want to keep that in the forefront because I think a lot of times people forget that or don't totally understand that. No, that makes total sense. Keep in mind that retail stores are tax collectors. The taxpayers are individuals. If, If retail stores were the ones generating revenue, you'd have retail stores in the middle of nowhere. You don't. You have retail stores in the middle of lots of population because it's where that population shops that determines where the tax revenues go. And I'd also like to second that our job is not to lobby anybody in terms of we, we're not we're not a political organization. We're an information organization, which sometimes is frustrating. Most city officials have open minds. Some do not, but most do and understand what's going on right now. And uh, I commend them. Uh, I will tell you that I thank goodness every day that there are people who want to do that, uh, be a city official, because I would not, I, 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 I could never do that. I just respect them greatly and I wish them all well. Well, it sounds like you guys are running a really amazing organization. I'm so happy to be hearing about this. I'd love to be a part of it in any way if I can. And I know that a lot of our listeners are in the same position. So thank you guys so much for coming on today. Uh, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Carla. We appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to Smashing Through Walls, a place for robust conversations about the building and blocks of Arizona commercial and real estate investments. Host Carla McGee is a commercial real estate broker with MHG Commercial, powered by My Home Group. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of My Home Group and do not constitute any offer or advertisement of business or services. The real estate market is cyclical and listeners assume all responsibility should any return on investment, tax consequences, credit effects, or financing terms not meet their expectations. Guests may not be qualified to provide financial, legal, or tax advice regarding a real estate transaction. Listeners are advised to obtain professional tax and legal advice and counsel. 